Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst from the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him to destroy him. Church of God, this is the word of God. This morning's text deals with misplaced priorities. What we see in the text, fasting and observing the Sabbath, these are important things, and we should do them, but not at the risk, not in replacing what's most important. These activities, what I call in your notes, religious practices, they're good things. I want to start off by saying they're good things. I'm not preaching against them. They can and they should benefit our spiritual growth. But often, we can treat them in such a way that creates burdens on ourselves and burdens on others. We let them get in the way of what should take priority. So I'm calling today's message priorities. This morning, what I want to do is I want to point out three things from our text that we should prioritize over religious practices. So let's start with the first one. Prioritize devotion over religious practice. 
prioritize devotion over religious practice. Will you follow along as I, as I reread the story from Mark chapter 2, verses 18? Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him to say, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, the religious practice that is specified in our text today is fasting. Jesus is approached by a group of people. The, book of, the, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that it was actually disciples of John that approached Jesus and asked him this question, why his disciples were not fasting. But really, by asking Jesus this question about his disciples, they're really questioning Jesus. They're questioning his examples. They're, they're in effect asking, why is he not leading the disciples in this practice of fasting? See, in the first century, both the rabbis and the disciples were responsible for each other. The disciples were sp- responsible to follow the rabbis. They were to do as their rabbi did. And equally as important, the rabbi was responsible for setting the standard for their disciples. So to question Jesus' disciples is to question Jesus. Now, fasting, fasting in this day was an expression of piety. It was an act of, res- of reverence. Interestingly enough, it was only required in the law of Moses one time a year during the Day of Atonement that's described in Leviticus chapter 16. This day is where the Israelites would fast and they would pray and they would practice self-denial as signs of mourning over sin. And by the way, this, this practice is still observed by Jews today. It's called Yom Kippur. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees actually fasted twice a week. It wasn't required by the law, but it was something they did out of one of their traditions. And this fast was done publicly. It really was all about a show. Matthew chapter 6 tells us that they would disfigure their faces, which is probably meant to communicate they wouldn't wash after sprinkling ash on their head. And the sprinkling of ash on their head was a sign of grief. They would make it known that they were fasting. It wasn't a matter between them and the Lord as fasting should be. It was a way for them to show off how religious they were. So in our passage, the question from the people is really not coming from a place of concern with the disciples not fasting. It was really coming with Jesus and his disciples not following the traditions. That was the bottom line. Why are you doing what all the other religious people do? So they ask this question of Jesus, and then Jesus answers in a brilliant way. Look with me at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, in answer to their question, Jesus goes into parable mode. 
You're probably familiar with Jesus' style of teaching. He uses parables, and a parable was a story that was used to illustrate a point. We're going to get more into Jesus' parables later on in our series. But what Jesus is doing here is he's using a custom of the day, the wedding feast, as his parable to specifically compare himself to the bridegroom and his disciples to the wedding guests. The point that he's trying to make is that it's inappropriate for wedding guests to fast at the wedding feast. That's not the right time. Now, wedding feast, sometimes in this day and age, was a week-long occurrence, and it was a time of joy. It was a time of feasting, not fasting. It was a time of celebration. So what Jesus is saying here by comparing himself to the bridegroom is that this is not the time to fast. It's the time to celebrate. Jesus is with them. Why fast when the bridegroom is here? And he then follows this up with two examples. Look with me at verse 21. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and, the, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What Jesus is doing here is he's using two illustrations to demonstrate something that's inappropriate or something that's out of place. If you put a new patch on an old garment, the garment's already shrunk in the wash, but the new patch hasn't. So if you put the new patch in the old garment, then when it's washed, the new patch is going to shrink. It's going to pull at the threads, and it's going to make the tear even worse. People don't do that. That's out of place. That's bad practice. And similar with the wineskins, Jesus is saying, if you put new wine, that is wine that's not yet fermented, in old wineskins, the skins will break as the wine ferments and expands. New wine is meant for new wineskins so they can stretch during the fermentation process. It was bad practice to put new wine into old wineskins. What Jesus is saying is putting new patches on old garments or new wine on old wineskins is just as inappropriate as fasting at a wedding feast or as fasting while I am here. Right now, Jesus is present. Celebration is in order. If the disciples were to fast while Jesus was with them, that would be out of place. Now, what's the purpose of fasting? I said just a few moments ago that it's an expression of piety. But you know, fasting is about denying yourself something so that you can draw nearer to and rely on God. Fasting is about denying yourself something so that you can draw nearer to and rely on God. It's a practice that's meant to have relational implications between you and your Savior, just like prayer and Bible reading. Why do we need to do that if Jesus is physically present? It would be a misplaced priority. He's right here. The disciples could go to him to fast in the presence of Jesus is to put the practice of fasting above devotion to the Lord. That would be like me sitting down to write a letter to my wife when she's sitting right next to me. It's out of place. It's inappropriate. It's not necessary. But then look what Jesus says. He does say something in verse 20. Because he does say that there is a time of fasting that's coming. Verse 20 says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus here is alluding to his death. The bridegroom, that is Jesus, will be taken away. He'll be removed, and then it will be appropriate for the disciples to fast. Why? Because he will not be physically accessible. 
Now we're looking at the priority of devotion over religious practice. And when I say devotion, what I mean there is love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for Jesus Christ. Fasting, as do other religious practices, are good things, and they have their place, but not if those things become a list of duties that drown out our devotion to Jesus Christ. You know, if we highlight the practice of religious things above a heart devotion to Jesus, then they're out of place. They're inappropriate. It's elevating the thing that we're doing above why we're doing it. It makes the thing, the religious practice, an end in itself instead of what it's really meant to be, an expression of our devotion to Jesus. Now, how do we do this in our day? Well, when I was young, my family went to a church that had a weekly evangelistic door-to-door program. In this program, you would gather with others and you would go to a neighborhood and you would knock on doors and try to witness to people. Now, let me say up front, can God use that? Yes, he can. Has God used those things to save people? Yes, he has. But is that biblical evangelism? And I would argue no, because it often turns into a duty that is performed rather than living out the gospel. It becomes part of, well, this is just what good Christians do. Biblical evangelism is a lifestyle of living out the gospel because I'm devoted to Jesus Christ. It's not a program, it's my life. We should be ready to speak the truth. Yes, don't get me wrong. We should take opportunities to share the gospel. Absolutely. But we should do it through building relationships with unbelievers while exemplifying the love of Christ. It's doing that and taking opportunities that God gives us to speak. The point I'm trying to make is this. Religious practices like fasting, witnessing, worshiping, reading God's word, those things are not important. They're essential. They're essential to your spiritual growth but they should be done as, done as an outflow of our devotion to Jesus, not merely items on a checklist. Here's another example. How guilty do you make yourself feel when you've missed your time in the Word? Or another question along the same lines. Have you ever felt superior to someone else when they confessed missing their time in the Word and you've been consistent? These feelings don't reflect a heart of devotion to Jesus. They reflect a heart that wants to check Bible reading off the to-do list. The true problem here is not missing the Bible reading, as important as that is. The true problem here is treating Bible reading as a duty that good Christians do instead of what it should be, an act done out of devotion to the Lord. So let me challenge you, church. Prioritize devotion over religious practice. The next point in your notes is this. Prioritize worship and rest over religious practice. Prioritize worship and rest over religious practice. Look at me at chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those with him? 
how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now this paragraph and the next deal with activities taking place on the Sabbath. And I told you last week, the Pharisees constantly bring up all kinds of objections to Jesus. They're always objecting to what he's doing, objecting objecting to when he's doing it. And here, they're objecting to his disciples who are plucking grain on the Sabbath. Now just to clarify, the Sabbath was the Jewish day of worship. It's on, the, it's on Saturday, and you weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. That was clearly laid out in the law. However, as I've explained over the past few weeks, the Pharisees added their traditions to the law. Nowhere in the law does it say you can't glean a few heads of grain on the Sabbath. And by the way, that practice was acceptable in Israel in the first century. Deuteronomy 23.25 reads this. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain... You may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. You were not allowed to harvest someone else's grain for obvious reasons, but you were allowed to help yourself. You were allowed, as you were passing by, to grab a few heads of grain and snack on them. This was God's way of providing for people. It was a way to provide for those less fortunate. You could consider this biblical social work in a way. So the disciples, they weren't working on the Sabbath, and they weren't stealing either. They were doing what was perfectly permissible. Now, let me encourage you. Don't go to Alan White's fields and start plucking the corn, okay? That's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus answers this objection with a story from the Old Testament. He says this in verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? Jesus is asking, haven't you read this? Now, he's not suggesting that they've never read the story. This is not something new to them. They were Pharisees. They knew their Bible They knew the Old Testament frontwards and backwards. Jesus, by asking this rhetorical question, is pointing out, you're missing the point of the story. David and his men were in need, and the priest gave them what was not permissible for any but the priest to eat as a way of meeting their needs. Now, the story that Jesus tells them is from 1 Samuel 21. Here in the story, David is fleeing from King Saul, who's out to kill him, And David goes to the priest at the city of Nob. He is in need and asks for bread. In the story, in response to this, the priest tells him he doesn't have any common bread, bread that he's able to just pass out, but he has holy bread. And this was called the bread of the presence. It was baked every Sabbath and set on the golden table in the holy place in the tabernacle, and only the priests were allowed to eat it. But in 1 Samuel... The priest gives it to David and his men because they were in need. And that act is not condemned in Scripture. So Jesus is using the story to make a point. Following religious practices, as important as they are, should not be more important than meeting basic human needs. And furthermore, there's something else that's happening in this story that's easy to miss. Jesus here is claiming authority 
even over King David. He's effectively saying here, if David did not sin by taking this holy bread, how much more innocent is the son of David? He caps this off with two great statements. Look at verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This principle, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, is really a slap in the face of Pharisaical tradition. God gave man the Sabbath as a day of rest, a day of rest and worship. However, the Pharisees had turned it into following burdensome, legalistic rituals. The common people were so weighed down by all the Sabbath-keeping traditions that there was no rest. And the last statement So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That encapsulates this passage. Again, as we've seen throughout our study, Jesus has divine authority. His authority overrules the Sabbath. That is, it overrules the observance of Sabbath customs. Jesus overrides those. It was he at the beginning, after all, that took his rest at the last day after creation. He determines what is lawful and unlawful on the Sabbath. On this topic, John MacArthur writes this, Jesus was clearly claiming to be God, the creator, and the one who designated the Sabbath in the first place and the sovereign over it. Church, let me encourage you, prioritize worship and rest over religious practices. You know, the ironic thing here is that the disciples weren't working when they were plucking grain. They were eating They were meeting a basic human need, hunger. They were refueling, you might say, and that is a type of rest. They weren't strenuously working. They were just having a snack. Now, we, in our day and age, we don't observe the Sabbath. In other words, we don't come together to worship and rest on Saturdays. But we do have similar needs, and I'm going to spin this from basic human needs to basic spiritual needs. You need to be in church. You need to be in small group. You need to volunteer to serve in a ministry. You need personal time between you and your Savior. All of that is part of worship, part of our Sabbath, though we don't meet on Sundays. But you also need rest. You need to refuel and recharge. You need to take time with your family to simply be together. These two things, worship and rest, by the way, they may not happen on the same day. We all have different schedules. Rest is not solely a Sunday thing. This concept of the Sabbath was made for man is not limited to one day of the week. Your Sundays may be too busy for rest and you need to work that in on another day. Great, figure that out. But worship and rest need to be priorities in our life, but not in ways that create legalistic constraints. That doesn't result in worship and rest. That results in putting undue burdens on yourself and others. That creates an environment of pressure to perform rather than passion for God. I once knew a family that was very restrictive about what they would and would not do on Sundays. And it was pretty severe. We will not do X, Y, Z on Sundays. And on one hand, I think there's something admirable about that. They're trying to respect the day of rest. But on the other hand, it was more about having those restrictions in place than what those restrictions were supposed to provide. Rest. 
So let me encourage you, seek that time of worship. Yes, come together with your church family on Sunday. Take the rest where you can. Make those things a priority, not in a way that's restrictive, but rather in a way that benefits you, that benefits your family, and that brings true worship, a worship from the heart to God. Lastly, prioritize compassion over religious practice. Prioritize compassion over religious practice. Read with me at the top of chapter 3. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, when we get to chapter 3, the text tells us that he enters this synagogue. We're not told where he is. Maybe he's back at Capernaum. Maybe he's somewhere else. But nevertheless, he goes into this synagogue, and Luke chapter 6 records the same story and tells us that Jesus was teaching before all this happened. At some point, Jesus sees this man with a withered hand. Now, that term withered, that literally means to be dried up. It was a term that was often referred to dead plants. So this man suffered from some kind of paralysis, And in verse 2, it tells us they were watching. And you should hear in your head the theme to Jaws. They were watching. This is referring, of course, to the Pharisees. Notice they don't raise an objection in this passage like they have in the previous passages. When they get to this section in Scripture, they've set a trap. This passage reveals that their animosity toward Jesus had built to a point that they were ready to do whatever they could to get rid of him. They were against Jesus. But notice, Jesus, even though knowing all things, did not succumb to fear. He was not intimidated. In fact, in our passage, he calls to the man with the withered hand, which is the only place in Mark where Jesus initiates a healing. He's going to do this to make a point. But before he even heals the man, he poses a question to the Pharisees. Look at verse 4. He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now notice, Jesus is asking the questions this time. He's turning the tables. Jesus initiates the healing. Jesus poses the question to the Pharisees, and he uses their same language. Previously, they said, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful? Jesus uses the same language. Is it lawful? Is it lawful to do good? Is it lawful to save life? He knows what's going on. He knows this is a trap, but he's out to prove a point. Even within the Jewish traditions, by the way, the Pharisees did make allowances for work on the Sabbath when human life was at stake. You were allowed... If you had to, to keep someone alive, you were allowed to do that. But anything beyond that was considered work and therefore unlawful. So this man's life is not at stake. Anything that Jesus did to help him would not have been considered work according to their traditions. But the obvious answer to Jesus' question is, 
doing good is better than doing harm, be it the Sabbath or not. To leave this man in a state of paralysis is not good. The Pharisees, by having such rules in place, they exhibit an attitude of cruelty toward those who are suffering. They have put following tradition above compassion for people. And it's almost like they're callous as they sit here and they remain silent. And the text tells us that Jesus is angry because he is grieved at their hardness of heart. This word for hardness means lacking understanding. It's in being insensible. It's being obstinate. They refuse to see anything beyond Jesus breaking their traditions. They are stuck on him doing what they think he should not do because it's the Sabbath. Jesus is both angry and grieved. He's angry over their reluctance to show compassion to this man, and he's grieved because of their continual failure to recognize who he is. And after looking around at them, Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. That's a miracle. Just like we've seen Jesus doing for many chapters now. Now think through this. The Pharisees knew this man was debilitated. They knew that. This was not some sort of faked miracle. Jesus restored this man, and it's obvious it was miraculous, but the Pharisees don't care. They don't even deny that Jesus did a miracle. In their hardness of heart, they refuse to make the obvious conclusion that this healing gives evidence to Jesus' identity. He is divine. They couldn't deny the miracle, but they did deny the miracle's significance. By the way, how does Jesus work here? How much effort does he actually put into healing this man? How is he breaking their traditions? He simply tells the man to stretch out his hand. He doesn't even touch the man like he does at other times when he heals people. So really, how much work is being done? This appears to be effortless. But nevertheless, the Pharisees have seen what they need. Their plan went as expected. And what do they do? Look at verse six. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. We're told that they went out immediately. It's like they couldn't wait. The trap was sprung and they got up and left. And it says they held counsel with the Herodians. Now the Herodians, this was a political group. This was not a religious group like the Pharisees. The Herodians supported Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. They backed Roman rule over Israel. And they're going to pop up again in Mark chapter 12. But you should note that the Pharisees were not for the things that the Herodians were for. These two groups opposed each other. But as one commentator points out, they found a common enemy in Jesus. So they meet, and they're already plotting and discussing What's to be done of Jesus? How can they destroy him? Here's the great irony of the passage. Here they're using Jesus' words of compassionate healing to condemn him. All the while, they're working on the Sabbath by plotting his death. Who's doing more work here? It's hypocritical. Church, prioritize compassion 
over religious practice. The Pharisees were more concerned with following their traditions. They were more concerned with keeping the Sabbath than with helping those in need. Elsewhere in Scripture, this idea of showing compassion above religious practice is evident. Isaiah 1, you can read this on the screen. Isaiah 1, verses 11, 16, and 17 go like this. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. When God's people fail to show compassion in favor of religious observance, God takes no pleasure in that. And if you are dutifully showing up at church on Sunday, but failing to love and show compassion to those around you throughout the week, you're living a life reflective of the Pharisees. We're not meant to be Christians only on Sundays. We don't come to church and smile and sing and listen to a sermon and then go and spend the rest of the week ignoring the needs around us. There are people right now within your sphere of influence who are in need. Maybe they're in tangible needs such as food, shelter, or helping hands. They're certainly in need of the gospel. How does God want you in their lives? How might you be ignoring them? How might you be even ignorant of their need? This idea is captured well in a song sung by Keith Green called Asleep in the Light. Part of the lyrics go like this. Oh, bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. You know, it's all I ever hear. No one aches. No one hurts. No one even sheds one tear. But he cries. He weeps. He bleeds. And he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see? It's such sin. Because he brings people to your door and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace, and all heaven just weeps. Because Jesus came to your door. You've left him out on the streets. Let me challenge you, church, and I'm challenging myself here too. Take some time this week to pray through who God may be putting in your life to show a little compassion and how you might go about doing that. Priorities in the Christian life. Why? Why is it important to place such emphasis on these priorities? We see from the Pharisees that they demonstrate what they demonstrate Sorry, let me start again. We see from the Pharisees, they demonstrate, and we don't stress the priorities, when we don't stress priorities of devotion to the Lord, proper worship and rest, and compassion toward the people, we put too much emphasis on secondary things. And a person who's focused on secondary things misses the gospel. It was through misplaced priorities that the Pharisees elevated a works-based religion 
They were trying to be their own saviors by keeping the law. They were dependent upon their own work, not the work of Christ. And by having misplaced priorities, we too can make the same mistake. We can emphasize our own merit and fail to see the gospel. Jesus, by being our substitute, did what we could never do. He placed priority on reconciliation between holy God and sinful man. And by doing that, Jesus reveals what what proper priorities are. He demonstrates both the seriousness of sin and the necessity of love. It was priority for Jesus to satisfy the wrath of God by taking our sin upon himself. It was also priority for Jesus to demonstrate his perfect love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Christ, we have this balance of the seriousness of our sin and the depth of his love far above any religious practice. And so let me challenge you, out of love and worship for who he is and what he's done, let flow the priorities of devotion to him, proper worship and rest and compassion toward others. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we operate from misplaced priorities. It's so easy for us to get turned around and pursue the religious practice as a means to an end instead of an outflow of love for you. Father, correct those tendencies in us. Lord, may what we do be motivated by devotion to you, proper worship and rest and compassion for others. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. And teach us to depend on you more and more. Help us to live out these priorities in a way that makes our faith attractive to a world that desperately needs you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.